This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Let's see if I still know how to work everything. We're on the air. Wonderful. Hey, how are you? It's great to be back in the cozy confines of our uh, Zoomerplex studio here in Toronto in Liberty Village. Uh, Tim Spreen, great job while I was uh, doing the show live from Greece. Thank you for your hard work. And enjoy doing the uh, the program from uh, Greece for the last five weeks. Uh, it was good. It's great to be home, though. I have to tell you, uh, I saw the inside of a hospital, and the mighty Aphrodite saw the inside of a police station. <laughs> I'm just gonna sort of leave that out there tantalizingly, and I'll maybe address that at another point when we have more time. Uh, we had a great time. Nothing serious. Uh, I think I mentioned on the air. North North uh, fell off the monkey bars. And a uh, hairline fracture. Uh, cast came off August 9th. He's fine. The police station, another matter altogether. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll bring the mighty Aphrodite on to explain that one. However, a lot happening. Always a lot happening. But when, while I was away, uh, a lot going on, obviously, some of which we addressed on the, uh, the program. Of course, the situation in Egypt, and we'll address that at some point. Uh, but what I find particularly interesting is, have you noticed the mainstream press now covering in the last several days the three sort of Lollapalooza conspiracy topics, things that we've been discussing on this program forever. It's like the mainstream media now is just sort of starting to wake up finally. And it's weird because, as I say, in the last few days, we have... Uh, newspapers, mainstream media outlets reporting on Area 51. We just talked about it a couple of weeks ago with Grant Cameron and uh, Victor Vigiani. The headline screaming, Area 51 is real. CI documents show. Well, duh. (laughs) Hey, welcome to the dance. As I say, we've been talking about that for a very long time, but uh, and, and at some point we'll address this. But it is fascinating, you know, the CIA now releasing documents which have been made available by the uh, National Security Archives. And for years they've been hinting at it, but they've always released these documents heavily redacted and, uh, 
you know, they've been willing to, to admit that there was a Nevada test site, but they've never actually used the, the words Area 51 before, but now they're conceding, yes, there is an Area 51. But we all know that, right? For those who uh, listen to this program. And the other one, of course, is the uh, is Scotland Yard now assessing new information about Princess Diana's death. So here we go again, 16 years later, almost to the date. And we'll address that at some point, as we do quite frequently. But now, you know, I, I almost feel bad because I, I feel like I have to respond now on this program and readdress things that we talk about constantly just because the mainstream media is finally waking up and talking about them. Now, the other one I find interesting is uh, JFK, of course, which is the granddaddy of conspiracy theories. Just reading this in the National Post. In fact, I, uh, I tweeted it. And you can, read, you can follow my tweets at uh, Richard Serrett. Five decades after President John F. Kennedy was fatally shot and long after official inquiries ended, thousands of pages of investigative documents remain withheld from public view. Again, duh. The contents of these files are partially known and intriguing and conspiracy buffs, I like the words they use, conspiracy buffs, are not the only ones seeking to open them for a closer look. Some serious researchers believe the off-limits files could shed valuable new light on nagging mysteries of the assassination, including what U.S. intelligence agencies knew about accused assassin Lee Harvey Oswald before November 22, 1963. It turns out several hundred of the still-classified pages concern a deceased CIA agent, George Joannides, whose activities just before the assassination and, fascinatingly, during a government investigation years later have tantalized researchers for years. This is not about conspiracy. This is about transparency, said Jefferson Morley, a former Washington Post reporter, uh, and on and on it goes. Anyway, I've tweeted that article, uh, but it's interesting again that these three stories, Area 51, the, the, uh, the death of Princess Diana, some would say the murder of Princess Diana, and JFK would all pop up in the mainstream media. Well, as I said, we talk about JFK all the time. And uh, we're going to resume our JFK series tonight. Tonight is Connecting the Dots Part 5 with our assassination researcher, James D. Eugenio, who is co-founder of two organizations, the Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination and the Coalition on Political Assassinations. He's the co-editor of The Assassinations, a book on the deaths of JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. And he is the author of the recently published second edition of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show once again, James D. Eugenio. Hey, James, how are you tonight? Good evening. Uh, just wanted to get a, a quick, a quick um, uh, take on another interesting aspect of, uh, of, JFK, um, of JFK, and that is that PBS has this new series called Nova, Cold Case, JFK, and they're doing the press tour now, and of course they are totally supporting the Warren Commission, the, the lone gun theory, uh, have you have you seen the series, and what is your take on it? Well, I'm, I'm actually glad you brought that up, because I'm actually doing an article on this, because one of the people that they're doing the press tour with is the infamous John McAdams. 
Yes, you know, JFK. You ever, have you talked about him on your show? Um, he sent me a book a number of years ago. Uh, was that called JFK Logic? Assassination Logic. Assassination Logic, yes. He tries to pick apart the various, you know, conspiracy theories. Uh, One of the worst books ever written on the JFK case. Yeah, I had that sense, which is why I never had him on the program. I, I leafed through it well, and I thought... Anyway, I, this yeah. director rushed to New Year. Did, did, you, did you go to the press conference? No, no, but I've been reading about it. Okay. You know, I, evidently they took a press junket. Were they actually there in Canada? I don't believe so, no. Okay. Because I, I didn't know PBS reached into Canada. Okay, it, it, it might. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, the, anyway. the WNED in Buffalo is uh, Buffalo, Toronto, PBS. Oh, so that goes into Toronto? Absolutely. Oh, okay. All right. So this director, Rush Genoyer, okay, evidently decided that he was going to hook up with John McAdams, which is an utter disgrace because the idea of putting a scientific show based on the information given to him by John McAdams is, is, is ludicrous. In fact, I'm writing a two-part article you know, on McAdams. It's on my website now, part one. I'm working on part two here. And this is going to be the uh, part where I discuss this new PBS show. Now, it, the article that I saw tells you everything you need to know about these series. Okay, here's the first sentence. Sorry, conspiracy theorist. Modern forensic science shows that John F. Kennedy was likely killed by one guy with a grudge and a gun, said Professor John McAdams during a panel for Nova's Cold Case JFK on Wednesday at a television critics press tour in Beverly Hills. See, this, this is ridiculous. Anybody who understands the forensic science in the JFK case knows that if you put together all the evidence, the last thing it, in the world it reveals is the case against Oswald. In fact, when you add in all the evidence, it distinctly points against Oswald, or against any single gunman. You know, the idea that that's the first sentence that they wanted to get out there tells me they didn't do the show as an honest exploration of the facts. They did it with an agenda from the beginning. How else could you do it that, in any other way with John McAdams, you know, as one of your consultants? You right. know, he has a history of being in the Warren Commission camp ever since he began to first surface on the Internet back in the early 90s after Oliver Stone's film came out. You know what I find you know, these, so th these types of, of programs, what they're trying to do is not so much, you know, prove their case. They're trying to demonstrate or they, they, they're trying to make this argument that, that um, uh, you know, what makes – they're trying to figure out what makes conspiracy theorists tick. And they always come up with this idea that there's something uh, comforting – in believing that there's some dark force out there rather than some random, you know, little person like Oswald who can turn the tide of history. Uh, that's what these shows are about. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to climb inside, you know, what makes conspiracy theorists tick? You know, what's going on inside their brain rather than, you know, mm -hmm. explore the, the, you know, your, for example, the arguments that you make and the, the facts that you bring and the evidence that you bring, rather well, than... Let's just, let's just for a moment, see, if, if you read the article, what I thought was so curious about the article is that although they let off with that sentence, they never revealed the information 
okay, that they're going to base this story on. So if you don't reveal the information, which you're going to use, then, of course, you can say anything you want, okay, because you're kind of holding it. You're like Monty Hall holding it behind the curtain, okay? You know, what do we have here? Well, we don't know what we have here. But I'm telling you, after 50 years, I've seen everything the other side has tried to put together, okay, to support this thing, you know, beginning from the FBI, you know, to the Warren Commission, to the Rockefeller Report, to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, to JAMA, you know, I've seen them all. Well, here they're going to try and dazzle us with with, uh, forensic scientists using a 3D crime scene reconstruction, virtual (laughs) autopsies. I don't know what a virtual autopsy is. High-speed cameras and other technologically advanced tools. Come on, James. They've got technologically advanced tools. As James Siebert, the FBI agent at the Kennedy's autopsy, said, look, when you try and do an autopsy without the body, that's not science. That's magic. Okay? Uh, Okay? And that's what these guys are going to try and do. They're going to try and do the autopsy without the body. How how can you possibly do that? But let let me mention two points, which I predict this show will not bring up. Okay? Kennedy was supposed to have been killed by two shots. That's what the Warren Commission says. We all know that's wrong. But let's take their story. Okay? You know, two shots. One that the Warren Commission says entered the back and exited the throat. One that entered, the Warren Commission says, entered the base of the skull and exited in front of the right ear near the temple, okay, on the side of the head. Now, any professional autopsy would know that when you have a gunshot wound, okay, in a person's body, one of the very first things you have to do is dissect the track of the wound, okay? Now, what that means, of course, is that you go in, okay, and you put what they call a malleable probe in, okay? James, and, I hate and, to and I hate st- to jump in here, but we got the music percolating up. I got to take a timeout. We'll come back and we'll pick up All on right. this point. Uh, James D. Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case, Episode Five tonight. JFK connecting the dots here in the Conspiracy Show. There we go. Bill Hicks, the great Bill Hicks, uh, bringing us back in with some very sardonic comments about the uh, the Warren Commission, I guess. James D. Eugenio is uh, with us in our continuing uh, series, now uh, episode five, as we commemorate the 50th anniversary this year of the assassination of JFK. And uh, James, of course, the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Just a few more thoughts. We're talking about this uh, Nova cold case uh, series uh, in which they continue to prop up the uh, the Warren Commission lone gunman version. Uh, James, before the break, you were talking about the autopsy, uh, and uh, let's yeah, just finish see, up on one that. One of the things I'm curious about, if this show is going to deal with, as I was saying, the, the Warren Commission states that there were two gunshot wounds in Kennedy. Now, as any professional autopsist will tell you, you know, the first thing you want to do is dissect the track of both wounds. Now, why do you want to do that? Because, number one, you want to figure out directionality. Okay? In other words, from which way did the bullets come? Number two, the second thing you want to figure out is, were they what they call through-and-through wounds? In other words, 
did they actually go all the way through the body? Okay? All right. Now, in this particular case, if you can believe it, and, you, and anybody who's familiar with this case probably can, there was no tracking of either one. There was no tracking of the wound that went through Kennedy's back, supposedly went through his back, okay? And there was no tracking of the bullet that went through his head, okay? That does seem odd. Why would that be? Now that, well, let me explain. See, the way you do that with a headshot, the way you track the bullet's uh, path through the headshot is what they call a sectioning of the brain, okay? You go ahead and you, um, what they call, um, you, you chemically treat the brain, okay, to preserve it and make it a little bit harder, all right? And then after a few days in the preservative, you go ahead and you cut apart the brain so that you can see the path of the bullet. Well, see, as everybody who knows this case understands, somehow... Kennedy's brain disappeared. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I go through this in my book, okay, to try and explain how bizarre this is, okay, because um, the other part that's so weird about this is that there was no weighing of the brain the night of the autopsy. Let me say that again because yeah, this is so please bizarre. Do. Please do. <laughs> that it's, it's just so far out there. It's, and I wonder if they're going to deal with this subject. There was no weighing of the brain the night of the autopsy. In other words, a guy dies of a gunshot wound to the head. You're doing the autopsy. When you start taking apart the vital organs, you don't weigh the brain. You see, that's a no-no. That is a no-no. Yeah, I've seen okay? enough episodes of Quincy to know that. Yeah, right. Okay. Now, it, the, the brain was not weighed until later. Now, let me tell you something else about this. The, when they actually did record a weight for the brain, it came in at 1,500 grams, which is at the very top end for a guy the size of Kennedy. Okay? It's at the very, very top end. In fact, it even exceeds a little bit the top end. You know, if you go to any medical examiner and you tell them that uh, this guy was 6'1", he weighed 175 pounds, and he had a brain that weighed 1,500 grams, Boy, that's a pretty, you know. Now, what makes that so unbelievable, of course, is that if you look at the witness testimony, if you look at the Zapruder film, if you look at the back of the car... I know where you're going with this, yeah. Most of the brain was left on the... And these brains were flying all over the place. Exactly. Okay? So how in the hell can you have a brain that is actually beyond the upper limits of what it should be when you have that kind of damage recorded in so many different places from so many different sources. It's utterly ridiculous. Now, someone like me who understands that in this particular case, when you suspect the worst, you're going to be right more than you're going to be wrong. You know, right. I suspect that the reason the brain wasn't weighed that night is wrong, that it actually was weighed that night. Okay. But they didn't want to record that weight because it would have been too much damage for one shot to the head. Ah. You know, if the, if the brain weight would have come in at, say, like 800 grams. Half of it's missing. And they said, well, wait a minute. How can one bullet that went from the back out the front dislodge that much volume from somebody's brain? I suspect something like that happened. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. And and they dumped that. Okay. And they said, okay, let's go for this. Yeah, fill in the blank. Let's go ahead and put pictures, uh, you know, in, in in the archives that look like a full brain, which nobody will. You know, nobody will, because they'll have them under seal, nobody will see them, and nobody will be able to question the fact that, wait a second, that brain looks almost completely intact, okay? How the, how, how the heck does that match up with what we see in the Zapruder film, okay, with what the witnesses said and what we said? That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, let's see uh, right. how they, they deal with that on Nova's yeah, uh, cold yeah, I, case. I, I want to see how they're going to deal with something like that. Well, it, you and know, I'll if for no other right reason... Now, it, I, if for no other reason, it might be worth watching just for a laugh-out-loud moment. Exactly. I'll tell you right now, they're not going to deal with it. Because if they deal with it, you know, they're going to have to say, well, wait, those conspiracy theorists are right. Okay? <laughs> John McAdams is wrong. You know? All right, so listen. Anyway, uh, yeah, the, the, those are the kind of things that, you know, see, and I'm glad you actually brought this subject up. Because this is what? This is mid-August? Yes. So we're about, what, three months out? Ex- to yeah, the anniversary, three yes. Three months out from yes. the anniversary, a little yeah. bit more than that. Yes. Okay, about three months in one week. You watch. You watch how many of these shows are going to be coming down the pike. Yes, and how okay. many of them will and, have and Michael next- Shermer in them? <laughs> how many will have as the skeptic Michael Shermer? <laughs> Mr. Skeptic? Yes. <laughs> it's He's their go-to guy. I mean, I, I have to admit, I've, I've had him on a few of my television shows because we have to have a skeptic. But anyway, that being said, you know, the reason I, one of the reasons I brought it up, Jim, this Nova cold case is because I'm getting so many angry emails uh, from my listeners who are just fed up with this type of program and said, you know, here we go again. I, I can see them rolling their eyes as they're typing this email and sending it to me. So anyway, that's why I address that but the, well, here, let, 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 let me give you some advice this guy the director of this show is somebody named rush denoyer and d-e-n-o-o-y-e-r yes i think he has a facebook page why don't you go ahead and put a notice on your website you know hey look you guys if you're tired of this baloney why don't you go ahead and email rush denoyer at his facebook site and said hey why don't you get rid of John McAdams and get somebody on your show who really knows the facts of the JFK medical evidence? Okay, that, that's a great you idea. You don't make a fool out of yourself. That's a great idea. Listen, James. Yeah. Uh, before we proceed with uh, our um, our episode tonight on uh, JFK, connecting the dots, I I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell people because I'm getting a lot of emails. People want to know how do they get a hold of your book, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison case. So let let us know how do we get a hold of it. Oh, okay. Well, you can get it off Amazon.com. Okay, it's it's on Amazon.com, all right. And you can also go to my publisher, which is Skyhorse, out of New York City, all right. And it's also available through Barnes and Noble. Okay. Now there, there's also an ebook version that you can get, and you can get that off Amazon.com. Uh, it's in also on it's on Kindle and Nook. Okay, so you can get it off both of those um, techniques, the, both of those processes. All right, great. Right? Uh, the thing that we were, we were going to discuss tonight is actually not oh, let in... Me, let me add one more thing. Yes, yes. There's actually a page for my book. I have a page for the book, destinybetrayed.com, and on the last page of the book, there's ways you can order the book. All right, destinybetrayed.com. That's the quickest and easiest way probably for people. Click on that. Yeah. I always like to, you know, if we can, drive them to your website, you know, rather than going straight to Amazon. 
So okay. thank you for that. Right. Now, the, the thing that we're going to talk about tonight isn't in your book, but we're going to spend maybe a half hour on it anyway, because I think, you know, when I met you in that hotel in L.A., you had me totally enthralled with this. Uh, and this has to do with what we'll call, I guess, the mystery of the mail-order murder weapon, uh, the uh, the Carcano rifle that uh, was allegedly used uh, to, to fail the, uh, the president. Now, the weapon, supposedly, according to the, War- the Warren Commission, was ordered by Oswald when? March of 1963? Yes. Now, oh, no, no, no. It was actually ordered earlier than that. It arrived in March of 1963. All right. Now, okay. assuming that Oswald did order that rifle, I mean, what, to what perp- for what purpose? Because he wouldn't have, you know, it hadn't been announced that Kennedy was coming to Texas, to Dallas. You know, what, what would the thinking have been there? Why would he have ordered that rifle? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Because here, here, see, in Oliver Stone's movie, you know, he brings up the question, why would you go ahead and mail order a rifle when you could buy one in Dallas, Fort Worth area, over the counter, which really would be very difficult to trace? But there's an even better question. If Oswald ordered that rifle, I'm sure most of your, most of your listeners know that Oswald was arrested in New Orleans in August of 1963. This was when he got in this altercation with Carlos Bringier, okay, of the DRE, and they were arrested for disturbing the peace. This is when, uh, when, when Oswald is delivering, delivering flyers for uh, Fair Play for Cuba. Yeah, he's handing out flyers on the street. Right. Okay. Now, he then gets arrested, and he then, instead of paying the bail money, which I think was 25 bucks. He actually wanted to actually spend some time in a cell, all right, and he asked to be interviewed by an FBI agent. Now, just think about that for a minute. What kind of communist goes to jail and asks to be interviewed by an FBI agent? But anyway, he was. Now, when he was arrested, he supposedly turned over to FBI agent Quigley an ID card with the name Alec Heidel on it. Right, A. Heidel. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, follow this very clearly. This is August. This is like the third week of August. Okay? Kennedy is going to be killed in three months. Okay? According to the Warren Commission, Oswald ordered that rifle under the name of Alec Heidel. Yeah. Who on earth could be that stupid? Right. Right. In other words... The FBI now knows how to trace the rifle because you gave them a guard with that name on it, and then you're dumb enough to use that rifle to kill Kennedy? Right, right. See, these kind of things don't happen in the real world, okay? They don't happen in real life. Very, very seldom do criminals make it that easy, okay? Are, are, are they that stupid? Right. See, this makes absolutely no sense. And for a long time, for a long time, you know, people just accepted that that was Oswald's rifle for a long time. And because people kind of get the first generation of critics in this case, like Josiah Thompson, Sylvia Marr, Mark Lane, Harold Weisberg, 
they accepted certain things. Okay, for example, they accepted most of them that Oswald went to Mexico City. Okay, which we which we dis- which discussed last week. Baloney, right? Okay, okay. They accepted, for example, the story about um, you know Wesley Frazier that the curtain rod story. They accepted the story of Marion Baker, who that's the cop who pulled up in his motorcycle, ran up the stairs. He says he saw Oswald at this soda machine on the second floor drinking a Coke. They accepted those things, which are all questionable today. Those are all questionable today. Yes. I would say all all three things are wrong. Okay. And they also accepted this, that somehow Oswald ordered that rifle, which today I'm certain was wrong. All right, listen, when we come back... Oswald didn't order that rifle. Listen, when we come back, James, you'll walk us through, uh, you know, uh, Oswald supposedly ordering this rifle from an ad in American Rifleman magazine. He sends a money order to Kleins in Chicago. uh, And um, this is just a remarkable... Excuse me, a remarkable story, and, and you tell it so well. Uh, and so poignantly, okay. we'll uh, we'll pick up on that. James D. Eugenio is my guest as we discuss JFK, Connecting the Dots, Part 5. He, the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Back with more. My name is Richard Serrett. You know, one of the interesting things is when you're talking about JFK or 9-11 or what have you, uh, a, a skeptic or a debunker, really, what, one of the things that they'll often throw in your face is Oakham's Razor. Occam's razor, you keep hearing that. You know, the simplest answer is most often the correct answer. Well, if you apply Occam's razor to the JFK assassination, the simplest answer is multiple gunmen, right? And, and, and more than one shot, or more than two shots. Uh, so you can turn that around. Next time someone throws that in their face, just throw it right back. Anyway, James Eugenio is with us, the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, as we discuss... Uh, the mis- uh, the mystery surrounding the mail order murder weapon in the JFK assassination. Now, so at the time, uh, well, walk us through this. The, the uh, Oswell supposedly takes out a, a post office box in Dallas under the name of was it under the name of A. Heidel or under the name of Oswald? Oh no, that's one of the big problems. That's one of the big problems. One of the very big problems with this, which in my opinion sinks it, is that. He did not take it out in the name of Heidel. He took it out in his name. Okay? Now, but before we get to that, let's talk about there's two parts of this transaction. There's the part about sending it in, and there's the part about delivering it. Okay? So let's concentrate first on the sending part. Okay? Because there's just as many problems with the sending part as there is in the delivery part. Right. Although, to me, it's a delivery part which sinks the whole thing. But you're talking okay. about now but buying and mailing the money order. Buying and, and right. mailing the money order. Okay, so let's concentrate on that. But first of all, I think you know, and I think most of your listeners know, that this was not the first rifle reported. You know that, don't you? The first rifle the, that Oz... The, um, what do you mean? This was not the first rifle reportedly found on the sixth floor. Ah, uh, yes. They, okay. they, they talked about uh, uh, another type of weapon. Was it a Mauser? It or? was a 7.65 Mauser. Yes. Okay. That was the first weapon. that was, And there's three affidavits in the Warren Commission volumes that say that. Okay? So right then and there, 
there's a problem, okay? Because it's literally impossible to think that three cops could th- could say mistake the Mauser for the Manicurcano for the simple reason that the Manicurcano rifle has stamped right on it 6.5 caliber made in Italy. How on earth could you mistake a 6.5 made in Italy for a 7.65 made in Germany Mauser? That's just idiotic. Okay? So what happened is that as the hours and the days wore on, the 7.65 Mauser disappeared. Okay? And it was replaced by this 6.5 millimeter Manneker Carcano rifle. Okay? And that as the hours wore on, the next, into the next day and the day after that, there began to be this so-called paper trail that said Oswald had ordered this rifle through Kleins in Chicago. He had picked it up at the post office. This was the rifle that he then took to New Orleans with him, and this is the rifle that was stored in the, in the Payne's garage, and this is the rifle that he put together this package with, and this is the weapon that was... He had in his brown paper pouch, and he took on that morning to the Dallas, to the Texas School Book Depository, hid for several hours, and then shot Kennedy with it. Okay? All right. Now, for many years, many, many, many years, people swallowed this. Okay? Now, let's explain in today's research with the declassified files of the ARB why this story does not hold water. Okay. And just a heads this up, James, story. this is a short segment, so let's, let's – it will get uh, – just this a few a minutes. Yeah. Oswald was supposed to have ordered this on a weekday while he was at work, okay? Now, go ahead and check his time cards at Jagger Child Stovall and see if he missed any of work that morning because he did not. I got it and right here in front of me. He checked in at 8 o'clock uh, and uh, – no. Worked right until 310 that day. Right. And there's even summaries of what he did. Because on that job, you had to write summaries of what you did. Now, the Warren Commission says that even though what those time cards say, they're wrong because on that day, he actually left work without telling his supervisor. He went down to the post office, which I think is about eight or nine blocks away. He purchased a money order, okay, but, now get this, he didn't mail the money order at the post office. He walked about another mile out of his way and dropped the money order in an envelope in a, in a post box, okay, in a mailbox. Now, how do we know that? Because of the number on the um, envelope, okay? Back in those days, you didn't have uh, zip codes. So that when they picked up mail, they did it by what they called zone numbers. Right. Okay? All right. So here's the first problem. A, how the hell did Oswald leave work without anybody knowing he left work? And B, why on earth would you not drop a money order off, okay, at the post office where you bought it and go out of your way to drop it in a, a mailbox? Why would you do such a thing? Okay? All right. Now, let's go to the next step. In the, if, if you saw the Warren Commission... Oswald mailed this thing from Dallas, okay? It got to Chicago at Klein's and was deposited into their account in 24 hours. 
This is over 700 miles away. That's pretty good even with today with FedEx. (laughs) I I live in L.A., okay? There's sometimes I mail stuff that doesn't get within the city in one day. And today we do have zip codes and we do have computers. It's a whole different world. But they want you to believe that not only did it get mailed in one day, it got deposited in one day. Now, let me explain why this is so hard to believe. Okay, listen, we'll, okay. we'll do that. We'll do that when we come back. All right. Quick timeout. James DiEugenio, the mystery of the mail order murder weapon in the JFK case, episode five, here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. Welcome back. James DiEugenio stays with us for a few moments yet as we discuss the mail order murder weapon in the JFK case, the Manlicker Carcano that Oswald supposedly ordered under the name of his alias, using his alias A. Heidel. Uh, and uh, again, in Dallas, working at Jagger's Child Stovall, Inc. at the time. And on this particular day, we've got his time card here, Commission Exhibit Number 1855. Uh, he did not punch out. Uh, and yet we're led to believe that around, I guess, 10, 10, 10.30 or so. Yeah, around he, that time. Yeah, he around, left. Around 9.45 or 10 o'clock. He left. Because walk- that letter had to have been mailed by 11. Right, because okay? that's when it's stamped. Uh, yeah. And so he leaves, supposedly, walks eight, nine blocks to the post office, buys the money order, and then walks another mile to a different postal right. zone to mail it. <laughs> Uh, and then comes back to work. That mu- that probably right. would have taken him uh, at least an hour. I'm guessing. I would say about an hour. Yeah. Yeah. And yet nobody notices uh, he's missing, and his time card is filled out, and it, it, and he accounts for that time in his time card. So right. anyway, right. Uh, right. so that's the, that's. Okay. The... Now we're going to get to the uh, the other oddity. How the heck this transaction was completed in 24 hours? Okay. So we have to believe the following. Somebody. The, the route carrier picked up the mail from that mailbox, brought it to the central Dallas-Fort Worth post office. They sorted it all out, put it on the right plane. The plane then flew to Chicago, and then it has to be sorted out at the other end, at the central post office. And then it has to be routed to the proper route carrier. Okay, The route carrier then goes ahead and drops it off at Klein's, and then it had to be sorted at Klein's because Klein's was one of the major mail order houses in America. Sure. They sorted out everything according to check, money order, cash, etc. Okay? They then sorted it out there, okay? And then they walked it over to their Bank of Chicago and then it was put in their account and this happened within 24 hours. I say to you, that's unbelievable. Yeah, this is 50 years ago. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed <laughs> to do that today, as you say, with computers and, and FedEx and UPS right. and so forth. Everything was done by hand. Okay? Now, you're going to tell me they could do something like that within 24 hours. I don't buy it. Well, let's suppose they did. Okay. Miracle of miracles, they did. Okay, now let's go the, to the next one. Yeah. Let's go to the next miracle, because we're going to be counting the miracles. Okay. <laughs> And you have to be, I'll tell you, you have to be like one of the great saints of the Catholic Church to believe all these miracles happen. Okay? All right. Now, the next miracle, if you follow the money order, which they have pictures of in the Warren Commission, you will see that it never went through the Federal Reserve System. See, all of Oswald's other checks and those things that are in the Warren Commission that they put in there, You'll see that they all have, I believe, three or four stamps, because whenever you pass a check through, 
it goes through the Federal Reserve System, and it ends up at a central bank in the area. And it's stamped through by all the other institutions as it goes through the Federal Reserve System. If you go ahead and look at Oswald's checks, you will see that they have those stamps on them. You look at this, it doesn't have anything. Yeah, other than the Klein stamp, I think, on the back. Right, uh, right. And then it ends up in the National Bank, but no other stamps. There's no other stamps on it. Okay, it was no, there's no other stamps on it. Okay? All right? So how on earth did it ever get cashed? All right? Something else. If you go ahead and look at the money order number, and you take a look at how many money orders they were selling, that money order is out of order, okay, at the rate that they were selling them each week, okay? All right. right, okay. Okay, now, that's the problem with sending it. Now, let's talk about the other end, the delivery, okay? There were two regulations, I think there were two or three regulations, that in order to ship firearms at that time, Kleins had to follow, okay? Number one, it was called a 2195 form, all right? There had to be proof of this, okay? A form had to be mailed along with the rifle, and this had to be filled out as to some kind of a proof of character of the recipient. And back in those days, you know, it was something like, you know, we don't want, we want to send one of these to one of these right-wing maniacs, okay, who might take a shot at somebody, okay? Well, that's, Oswald never filled one of those out, okay? But secondly, the other one is that when you ever mail a uh, firearm, okay, or even a package to a, mail, a, a P.O. box, it has, the name has to match, okay, the name on the P.O. box form. Well, this didn't. The name on the P.O. box form was Oswald. But he ordered, it, he ordered it under his alias, A. Heidel. He ordered it under, so now, in that regulation, in that regulation, okay, it states specifically that if this, is, this rule is not followed, okay, if it does not, the name does not match, the post office must return it, sender, must return to sender. Package must be marked, return to sender, and mailed back, okay? Further... The application form has to be kept for two years. Now, I know this for a fact because I had this kind of a problem with the post office, okay? And they keep these things for three years for that specific reason because they do not want to be caught giving merchandise to the wrong person. Because on the form, if you authorize anybody to go ahead and take that um, and take merchandise and it goes to the wrong person, that's what saves them because you actually wrote down they can give it to somebody else. Right. So the application, now really, now follow what I'm saying. If you believe the Warren Commission, the application was, was kept except for that part. In other words, the, the part, where... part where it authorizes anybody else to receive mail, that wasn't kept. Now, on Oswald's New Orleans application, P.O. Box, it was kept. It was kept. Okay? But somehow in Dallas, it was not. So the Warren Commission tried to say Dallas was breaking regulations, which is an absolute lie. Okay? 
all right? That, excuse me, New Orleans broke, broke the regulation, excuse me, but not Dallas, which is a lie. Dallas ditched a third part, okay? They deliberately ditched a third part, okay? Because they knew that if Heidel's name was on that post office box form, they had a serious problem, okay? They had a really serious problem if his name isn't there. The question being, how the hell did Oswald ever get that rifle? Right, because they, they can't... never gotten that far. Again, the now, rifle was ordered under Heidel's name, delivered to Lee Harvey right. Oswald's now, post office box. If you look very carefully in the Warren Commission volumes, okay, it says that dealing with certain aspects of the investigation, I think it's in volume 25, okay, where it actually says that the FBI investigated this and Heidel's name was not on the form. Okay, because the FBI has informants at all these PO boxes. Okay, right. right. All right. So now, let me another problem. No person at the post office ever remembered giving that box, that package to Oswald. Okay. Now, let me ask a question. If you had gone through this process by giving this big package from Kleins to Oswald, and he had to have shown you then that he was really Heidel, because that's the name the package was in. And no low-level postal employee is going to do something like that without checking with his advisor. Okay, If a guy has an alias that proves that he's really this other guy, okay, you're not going to let him do that just with just you. You're going to refer. You're going to bring the supervisor. Is this okay? He's really this guy. No employee of the post office remember doing that, and you would have. Right. I mean, especially right. when you saw Oswald's picture on TV. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Oh my God! That's the guy I gave the rifle to. That's the guy. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, one other thing. One other thing. They could never find the specific deposit in the bank records for that transaction. They went all through Klein's records, and they could never pinpoint the exact deposit. And in fact, at one time, they actually had the transaction as being in February, okay, which was the wrong month, okay? They actually had the transaction being in February, all right? They actually tried to say it was then, and there was actually a bank deposit slip that actually said it took place in February. Right. They could never track and pinpoint which one of the deposits the clients was. And in my opinion, the reason they could never do it is because Oswald never sent that money order. Well, there, okay. and, there, and there's one other thing, and that is that the the the, wep, the, the weapon that was supposedly ordered was it not a, it's a the wrong rifle? It was a 40 inch, and <laughs> and the murder weapon was a 36 inch. I'm glad you brought that up. It's the wrong rifle. Explain that. The we, rifle in evidence that the Warren Commission says that was used in the crime is not the rifle that they said Oswald ordered. What did he supposedly order? A 36 or a 40 inch? Okay, he he supposedly ordered. A 36-inch short rifle, okay? No, excuse me, a 36-inch carbine. The rifle found that the Warren Commission says that was used in the crime was a 40-inch short rifle, okay? A carbine is even shorter than a short rifle, okay? 
All right. A long rifle is usually like 46 inches. This was classified as a short rifle. So in other words, it was the wrong length and it was the wrong classification. Okay. Now, you ought to hear these guys try and explain this. Okay. You ought to hear them try and explain this. Okay. That it's the wrong rifle. Okay. I mean, it gets ridiculous with these arguments. All right. See, if you follow this transaction all the way through, and by the way, we, we can go back even further, you know, if you really want to. You can go all the way back to the boat that carried the rifles over from Italy. Yeah, right? these were manufactured, what, about, these were manufactured about 1940, I think. Yeah, right. See, you cannot track the rifle in the packaging from Klein's because there's important stuff that's missing, Okay. You know, you can't even show where that actual package of rifles ever was. It was at this warehouse in New Jersey before it went to Klein's, okay? So after going through all this, you know, and then there's the thing about Marina when she was being interviewed by the Secret Service. Marina Oswald, yeah. Yeah. She said, I never saw Lee with a rifle with a scope. Okay? (laughs) She said that in one of her first Secret Service interviews. So if you put all this back to back to back to back, okay, and we can go into, we can go into other stuff too about the, how the FBI lied about the serial numbers on these rifles. Well, maybe we can pick because up on now, that now, next now, week. Now lie, okay, about the serial numbers on the rifles. Okay, and, and the reason they lied about it is they did not want to reveal that the serial numbers were not unique to each rifle. Okay, they were not unique because during World War II, uh, Mussolini ordered that rifle to be manufactured by, I think, four different rifle manufacturing plants. Jim, maybe we can and pick he, up on some of this next week because we're out of time, but we're okay. going to uh, reckon order here back uh, one week from today and continue with episode six of our series on JFK, Connecting the Dots with James D. Eugenio. Always a pleasure, Jim. Talk next week. Okay. We'll see you. All right. My website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And also, as always, follow the truth wherever it leads. All right. Just (laughs) sending off a quick email as we go to air here. Welcome. Mentioned uh, earlier, of course, it's great to be back here in uh, Toronto after an extended stay with the family in uh, Greece. And I sort of let this one hang out there. I said, uh, you know, very uh, adventurous time, every uh, very memorable uh, time spent in Greece with my nephew, uh, North and Zach, my twin boys. And later in the trip, we were joined by the, the mighty Aphrodite, uh, particularly after uh, she got wind that North had uh, injured himself. He broke his arm falling off some monkey bars, hairline fracture, what they call a green stick fracture. Had exemplary care, very impressed with uh, the hospitals and the uh, the specialists uh, there in uh, Kalamata. Uh, so she arrives, and uh, I mentioned earlier that so we saw the inside of a hospital and also the police station. Or I said at least the mighty Aphrodite saw the the inside of a police station, and I just kind of left it hanging there. And all of a sudden, I got this uh, deluge of emails saying, "What is going on? What kind of trouble did the mighty Aphrodite get herself into?" Well, not nothing uh, really. It wasn't her fault. I just want to clarify that. Uh, but we got into a bit of a traffic uh, incident. Um, you know, 
everything you hear about the way people drive in Greece is true. <laughs> and uh, Athens is is one is one situation. And I've now driven in Athens officially. I can say I've driven in Athens, and uh, I I, uh, I can live to tell about it. Uh, but Kalamata, uh, uh, just a deluge uh, of, of of tourists descend on Kalamata. Beautiful location, and uh, the ma- the main sort of uh, drag along the the beach is called Navarinu. And at night, at about 10 o'clock, uh, when people come out uh, and fill the tavernas and uh, this normally sort of peaceful, quiet street just turns into utter chaos and mayhem. And navigating along Navarino at, at that hour is, is just treacherous. It's one of those white-knuckle situations. Uh, so we um the, the mighty aphrodite was actually driving the rental car because i was not uh, feeling too well so we're looking for a um a taverna the boys are in the back looking for a place to eat and we had never driven along uh, navarino at this time of night so we she stops the car to make a left-hand turn and there's only one lane going either direction double solid lines right which means you can't cross that's an invisible wall so as she's come to a complete stop signals for a left-hand turn, about to turn onto this little side street to find a place to park. Uh, We get slammed by a motorcycle, two individuals on the motorcycle, neither of them wearing helmets, and they went careening off the the front end of our, uh, the driver's side car, onto the sidewalk, up onto the curb, and again, neither of them wearing, we're watching this happen in slow motion as this driver of the motorcycle, uh, who was absolutely in the wrong. I mean, he came up from behind us and passed us, crossed over that double line into oncoming traffic uh, because he didn't want us to wait, or he didn't want to wait, rather, uh, and smashed into the front end of the car. Anyway, uh, it was a very close call for them. Uh, Again, not wearing helmets. So it all, you know, came out uh, in the police report, but uh, the mighty Aphrodite had to, you know, spend a couple of days going back and forth to the police station, and that's why she was there. Nothing serious. Nobody was seriously hurt. Thank God. Um, however, that was our adventure in Greece. Hospitals, police stations, but mainly the beach and the mountains. Wonderful time had by all. I mentioned uh, off the top I was uh, sort of hurriedly sending a, uh, an email. Uh, we're awaiting a call from uh, Jeffrey Steinberg from Executive Intelligence Review, who we're hoping is going to call. Uh, Jeffrey really made his bones. Uh, well, that's not entirely fair, but he's probably best known for his work investigating the uh, the death of Princess Diana, end of August. We're coming up on the anniversary in, in 1997. Of course, we all know the, uh, the, the gruesome details of that Paris crash. Uh, and most people thought it was sort of, uh, you know, put to bed after the uh, an official inquiry, uh, I guess it was called the uh, the Paget uh, Project, which was uh, headed by Lord Stevenson, and that went on for several years, hundreds of witnesses, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of pages of of testimony and and evidence, and of course they ruled it was gross negligence of the driver, uh, Henri Paul, but now we're seeing. And again, this is one of these stories that is popping up now in the mainstream news. The uh, Metropolitan Police are assessing new information it has recently received about the deaths of Princess Diana and Dodi El-Fayed in 97. Scotland Yard said it was scoping, quote, end quote, 
the information and assessing its relevance and credibility. It said it was not a reinvestigation into the deaths of the couple in a Paris crash on August 31st, 97. An inquest in 2008 found they'd been unlawfully killed partly due to the gross negligence of the driver. In a statement on Saturday evening, the Metropolitan Police said the assessment would be carried out by officers from the Specialist Crime and Operations Command. It added the death had been thoroughly investigated and examined by the inquest held at the Royal Court of Justice in London. Reports in several British Sunday newspapers suggested there are allegations the military was involved and that information had been passed to the police by an army source. A Met police spokesman said that the force would not discuss the source of the information it was assessing. A royal spokesman also said there would be no comment on the matter from Prince William or Prince Harry or from Clarence House. A spokesman for Dodi's father, Mohammed Al-Fayed, said he had no comment to make but said he would be interested in seeing the outcome, adding that he trusted the Met to investigate the information with vigour. Scotland Yard said its assessment did not come under Operation Paget. The police investigation into allegations that the princess and Mr. Al-Fayed, her boyfriend, were murdered. It was a theory endorsed at the time by Mohammed Al-Fayed, the then-owner of London store Harrods. But in December 2006, the report into Operation Paget said it had found no evidence of murder and dismissed all conspiracy theories surrounding the deaths. Operation Paget concluded, just like the French investigation in 1999, that driver Henri Paul had been drunk and driving at excessive speed. Di Davies, a former head of Royal Protection, told ITV News the deaths were an accident by any definition and three separate inquiries have come to the same independent conclusion. He added, I'm absolutely convinced this was an accident, so I'm mystified after 13 years how any new information can possibly allege anything other than this was a tragic accident. So, we'll wait anxiously to find out uh, about these allegations that someone in the military may have been involved in her, in uh, Princess Diana's murder and that this came from, uh, came, was passed to the police by an army source, an unnamed army source. So, as I say, uh, we are awaiting the uh, phone call, perhaps, from uh, Jeffrey Steinberg from Executive Intelligence Review, who has really covered this, this story from pillar to post uh, going all the way back to that very night and uh, certainly knows probably more about it than anybody. So uh, I want to throw that on the table for you if you want to comment on that. And what we'll do now to the bottom of the hour, we'll, um, we'll do open lines. If you'd like to comment on Princess Diana's uh, murder and the anniversary coming up, I say murder. I happen to believe that uh, there was foul play. I was in uh, London and we produced an episode on Princess Diana's uh, death for uh, season two, I believe, of The Conspiracy Show, the television program. And I, I spoke with the, uh, the head of security, John, I believe it's John McNamara, uh, who uh, was head of security at Harrods, worked for Mohammed Al-Fayed and continues to investigate that. And, and McNamara was not only the head of security for Harrods under Mohammed Al-Fayed, his former Scotland uh, Yard uh, investigator. And the other interesting aspect of this investigation is that Princess Diana sat down at one point with her lawyer and wrote this lengthy letter detailing why she feared for her life, who she suspected were, was going to um, kill her. 
And this letter was presented to Scotland Yard apparently and locked in their safe and has never seen the light of day. Now, there have been some excerpts of other letters that I believe she wrote to her butler and so forth that were later printed in some of the tabloid newspapers in London. But that's not not the letter I'm talking about. This was a letter she wrote with her lawyer that that Scotland Yard appears to want to uh, keep buried 16 years later. Now, also this week, so we have this, we have the mainstream media again talking about the, uh, the death of uh, Princess Diana and wondering whether there was uh, foul play involved. And this investigation may prove to be very interesting. But the other story that we have now coming out of the mainstream media has to do with another huge mystery and secret and conspiracy, if you, if you will, and that is Area 51, which, of course, we have talked about many, many times. In fact, just... A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Grant Cameron, Canadian ufologist and author of a brand new book on Area 51, along with uh, Victor Vigiani, our good friend, talking about this very subject. And now, lo and behold, newspapers around the world reporting Area 51 is real, CIA documents show. Area 51 fodder for countless sci fi tales and conspiracy theories is an actual government facility. 145 kilometers north of Las Vegas. The facility, which the government long denied even existed, is often the setting of extraterrestrial experiments and government cover-ups in science fiction shows like The X-Files. But, according to CIA documents made available by a National Security Archive, access to information requests, the site was used to test Lockheed U-2 reconnaissance aircraft. Well, we've known about that for a long time. While U.S. officials have loosely acknowledged the existence of what they refer to as, quote, end quote, Nevada test site before, they've never officially acknowledged it. Previously released documents pertaining to the site had been heavily redacted. National Security Archives senior fellow Jeffrey Reichelson reviewed the materials in 2002, but all mentions of Area 51 were redacted. But he requested the documents again in 2005 and got the new unredacted versions a few weeks ago. This goes to show the U.S. government is no longer as protective of Area 51 secrets, he said. So there you go. That's, that's the extent of the article. I just find it interesting uh, and curious as to why, why the CIA, through the National Security Archive, is finally coming clean and admitting there is an Area 51. Perhaps you have some thoughts on that, and I'd love to hear them. We'll make the phone lines available to you now until the bottom of the hour. The Conspiracy Show, coming to you live from Toronto for the first time in five weeks. Happy to be home. Back with more in a moment. Hey, welcome back. Open lines to the bottom of the hour before we welcome Joel Skousen who will join us for the last half of the program. Uh, He, the editor of World Affairs Brief, Joel always uh, has some fascinating uh, information, and um, we're going to discuss the Middle East uh, and what's going on in Egypt, of course, and uh, China as well with Joel Skousen. That's coming up at first. Open lines and our first order of business uh, will welcome our good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal. Hey, Nelson. Hey, Richard. How are you doing tonight? I'm all right, my friend. How are you? I'm well. It's it's quite exciting times. I wanted to just get your feelings about it, because these are subjects that you've been talking about for a long time, or starting now to break surface again, Lady Diana. 
Yes, I, I actually am glad you called because as a media scientist, I want to turn it around and ask you because I, I have to be honest, I'm kind of perplexed uh, what's going on right now. It's kind of, you know, uh, odd. You know, I, you've been covering this beat a lot longer than I have, but I've been, you know, doing this show in different incarnations for about a dozen years talking about these things. And now all of a sudden, in the space of a week, we have three Lollapalooza conspiracy type theories popping up in the mainstream media. The one that's the strangest of all to me is Area 51. So what do you think yes. is going on? Why, why are they suddenly reporting on these things? It certainly seems that they're trying to now to. It's a psyops. Let's not forget it. It's a psyops. But they what they want to do is alter human perception. And and uh, the the world used to be. We were told it was flat, and now it's round. And all sorts of different things. We're told they've gone to the moon. I mean, on the on the Diana thing, the the Jeff Steinberg. Really, you and I have brought him on. And of all the people who we've ever spoken to, he seems to be the one who was the most closer, closest to the action, wouldn't you say? Uh, yes, he certainly uh, broke a lot of those, um, you know, I, I believe it was Steinberg who first reported on the mysterious... On place, you and I. Right, that mysterious white Fiat Uno that appeared in the tunnel. I think that was Steinberg that reported that first. A lot of those those um, those stories came from Steinberg. So uh, we were hoping he would call in. doesn't look like he's going to make it tonight, but that's all right. Well, what do you think of this new information that some military person may be, have been involved in her murder, and this is coming from an Army source? Well, it certainly falls in line with things that we've heard before. Uh, you recall that um, we had uh, Sh- uh, Sherman Skolnick interviewing uh, Sir Michael Shrimpton, who was a lawyer for MI5 and MI6, and he talked about how they used the Turkish wet team to take out Dr. Kelly. And so he started to talk a lot about these teams behind the scenes that they use when they want to take people out. And he started to discuss some things and make it clear that this is the sort of thing it was done and used by the British using foreign agents to take uh, Diana out. For the, and we went through the motives with Steinberg, and it was rather clear about how um, if she had died, uh, if the Queen was told by her lawyers, so said Shrimpton at the MI5, he said that uh, the Queen got word that if she passed away, that Diana had more authority in her family as a Stuarts, being there a thousand years before the Windsors. Yes, she was she related to the Stuarts. And yeah. could, could have nothing to do with Charles. He'd be set aside, and she'd be now the Queen sitting on the throne of England. Yeah, people tend to forget that uh, you know the um, the Windsors were sort of Johnny Come Latelys compared to the the Stuarts, and and the Spencers could trace their lineage all the way back to King Henry VIII, I believe. Right. So once Diana separate divorced Charles, if she became if Queen Elizabeth passed away, she'd be queen. He wouldn't be king. And and That's not talked about much, and that was what is what Shrimpton exposed and talked about on and the, the show. And the potential of having, as the royal consort, a Muslim. Yeah, exactly. Dodi El Fayed. Well, you know, as as you and I have talked over the years, uh, we we tend to think that just because we live in 1997 or 2013, that that things have become civilized and we are less violent as a species. But what we're really seeing is it's just a continuation of the War of the Roses, but it's all sort of happening behind the scenes. Nothing really has changed in the last 500 years in terms of the way that these powerful families conduct themselves. 
And Marshall McLuhan pointed out that as we get more electrified, we become more tribal. And the more tribal we get, the more violent tribal people are. People think that tribes are more peaceful. Not so. The opposite of civilized man is tribal man, and he's a very violent species. All right, Nelson, uh, what about the Area 51? Let me get your take on that. I mean, I know that you're not a a great believer in the... uh, sort of the uh, UFO ET phenomenon, at least in terms of, you know, these being visitors from other planets. And I share your thoughts on that to, to a certain degree. But why do you think the, 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 the mainstream news, or more specifically, why is the CIA now releasing these documents and admitting that there is an Area 51? Well, I think it's important that ultimately, Richard, we've said that it points to the fact that if you're going to gather the kings and armies uh, the kings are going to gather the armies of the planet together to do battle at Armageddon. They have to have some big, big enemy in order to get everybody a common enemy. And the only common enemy available for all, if, in order to enlist the armies of the world is an evil alien coming back, an alien who's going to attack and take over and... Uh, enslave humanity. All right. When, of course, the evil alien turns out to be the second coming Christ. Fascinating, Nelson. All right, my friend. Thanks for checking in. Well, thanks a lot. It's been exciting, and congratulations. You're one of the first people who really split, dipped their toe into the water of the Area 51 and the UFO, and it's really exciting. Uh, it's, it's alleged also, Beter alleged that uh, at Area 51 was where they were. The, some of the Nevada companies also were working, were doing the, the synthetic automatons and the doubles. Oh really? Well, that's something yeah. we'll, that's an, that's a that's worthy of an hour treatment uh, at a future date. Let's let's talk about that. Let's put that For down sure. on the calendar. All we right. Look forward to it, and congratulations again. Thank you, my friend Nelson Thal. Doubles being uh, churned out at Area Fifty One. That's uh, auto, uh, automatons. These would be doubles, I guess, for uh, presidents and world leaders, etc. All right. Let's uh, check in with Darlene, who is in Hamilton, Ontario tonight. Hello, Darlene. Welcome. Hello. Uh, I have uh, just two questions. Um, uh, the first one is for your new uh, guest that's coming up. I have heard that uh, WikiLeaks, uh, Julian Assange, they say that he caused uh, the uprising in Syria and Egypt. I'm not following it that closely so I don't understand how people are putting that connection between his his WikiLeaks and those two events. Uh, no, I, I would find it hard to connect the dots uh, as well. <laughs> and then the second question is, uh, well that, that would be for your guest, and the second question is for you, that phenomenon where uh, you saw the car accident uh, it's slowed down. That isn't, is that's universal, phenomenon. isn't it? I mean, everyone who's ever been in a, a car accident or not, some sort of mishap. Not everyone. Not everyone. Not everyone. Really? No. Uh, okay. No, I was in uh, two where the person next to me didn't experience. Only, uh, only I experienced it. Oh, isn't that interesting? And uh, I remember this because the one person got very annoyed with me that I wasn't panicked. I wasn't panicked because as the uh, this truck rolled over... And the uh, contents went across the highway. Everything moved in slow motion. There, it is a phenomena. It's an unusual one. Um, um, perhaps Buddhism 
um, might explain it, but uh, maybe you could do a, a program on it. That would be a great... Uh, why do you think Buddhism would explain it? I think I read something briefly about it. Um, I've always periodically asked about it. Uh, I have heard of other people talking about it, and uh, not everyone experiences this phenomenon, but um, they did give a a slight explanation as to what's happening. Not not everyone goes through it. It just everything slows down, and um, you you view it in in slow motion. Yeah, it's almost like a it's almost like a a a, a variation on an out of body experience. A little bit like that. They said it's giving you extra time to react. It's something to do with some. It is a little bit like that, but I'm not quite sure if. um, And there was a book on it. I'll um, I'll delve into that because I would pendulum I would, something to do with a pendulum. The pendulum. All right. Well, Darlene, thanks for the heads up on that. And that's a great idea. I will. Uh, I'll try to put together a show on this slow motion phenomenon. They probably have a different name for it, but it yeah. is, with some exceptions, as you pointed out. But it is. It seems to be rather universal. When when anyone has some sort of a mishap, uh, there's that, and then there's the uh, the other thing, which is you know your life flashing before your eyes. Thank God I've never had that. Uh, but uh, the slow motion effect is certainly um, is certainly very widespread. Darlene in Hamilton, thank you for the call. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let's say hello to uh, Sydney. Welcome, Sydney, calling from Toronto. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Sydney White. I was listening for the first time in ages because I know you've been away. Uh, but I was thinking that John McAdams that you were talking about. Uh, earlier we were talking about John McAdams and JFK yeah. Logic, yes. Well, the strange thing is he phoned me the very next day after I had interviewed Judith Very Baker. Oswald's and, girlfriend, yes. Uh, yes, and as you maybe know, because it was on rents, as I was interviewing her at a family reunion, uh, there was an attempt on her life. Yes, I did hear uh, that um, she swallowed some shards of glass or something. Absolutely. I was interviewing her very up close, six inches away, when I saw the blood coming from her mouth. And uh, she said, there's something in my throat I can't... uh, For those people that don't know, uh, Judith Very Baker was uh, uh, claimed that she is Oswald's – she was Oswald's girlfriend for a time and and she did not uh, believe for a moment that Oswald was involved. In fact, she – I had her on the program and she talked about how Oswald was a great fan of Kennedy uh, and um, I guess he he found out too late that he was – Going to be pinned with the with the uh, the assassination that he was a patsy, but all along he he thought maybe he was part of some or operation to protect Kennedy to save Kennedy, and then found out too late. No, Kennedy was going to be killed, and it was going to be pinned on him. Yes. So so what happened at this dinner while her family were enjoying themselves, and I was at the top speaking with her. Uh, I discovered that there had been ground glass put in her food. Uh, she was served last, and everybody had a different dish, and I was very close to her. But the next day, and I wrote it up, of course, and it, it went in rents, but the next day I got a phone call, and I wondered who McAdam was, and I found out on your show. He phoned me up, and he said, I think she rigged it all herself. And I said, that would be very hard to do, because I've been an investigator for 40 years. I was six inches away from the woman, and if she had 
uh, put anything in her mouth while I was speaking with her, I surely would have noticed. Uh, but that's what he had to say to me, that he taught uh, professor. He was teaching uh, Kennedy's assassination. And so I thought after that, well, I'm sure you pay, they pay you very well, but I'm sure it's disinformation. Um, the second thing that I noted was uh, when Diana uh, was killed, because I know she was, I was uh, at a conference in Quebec, and I was listening to the radio from Paris the very next morning, and a friend of mine and I and several people in the restaurant all were listening to the radio, and we all heard from Paris in French that Diana had said, don't give me any drugs, I'm pregnant. Now, that was denied for years and years, and I told it on my radio show at the time at the university and got a lot of flack. But now I have actually papers in my file. A few years ago, the papers in France let that news out, that yes, indeed, she was pregnant at the time she was killed. Well, this would explain, uh, you know, why she was partially embalmed uh, prior to Prince Charles. I mean, imagine, you know, no no autopsy uh, performed, uh, and then she's partially embalmed. So one has to ask, you know, why would they do that? Was it to cover up the fact that she was pregnant? Fascinating. Hey, Sydney, we're uh, out of time here, but thanks. Good to hear from you again. Uh, sure, I will. <laughs> All right. Thank you. When Bye-bye. we come back, thank you, Sydney. When we come back, Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief, taking a look backstage in the Global Theater and providing some insights for some very troubling times. We're getting close. We're getting close. Not to the end of the show, I mean. Uh, I mean, we're getting close to the truth. We're, we're maybe getting a little too close. When you start to see the mainstream media start to talk about the things that we talk about in this program, then you know you're on to something. We're all on to something. Uh, and there's probably, there's never been more need for programs like this than right now. When you look at what's going on out there, the news is grim. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world. There's a lot of strife, economic strife. And then we have unprecedented violence, even by the standards of the Middle East, when we look at what's going on in Syria now, and Egypt especially. It's a troubled world, folks, and a great need for programs like this, and also a great need for researchers, alternative journalists like Joel Skousen, who publishes a very important newsletter, and we'll tell you how to subscribe in a few moments. But Joel is a political scientist by training, specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory, and as I say, the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief. Joel Skousen, how are you tonight? I'm just fine, Richard. It's always good to be with you. A lot's happening. Oh, I'll say. Troubling times indeed. It seems like uh, the Middle East in particular is uh, just in flames. Let's get an update on what's happening in Egypt. I think the death toll now uh, over 800 uh, at the time of the World Affairs uh, brief publication on August 16th. It was around 600. This thing just seems to be escalating. Give us a, a, a sense of what's really happening there. Well, it's really tragic because there is no excuse for the security forces in armored vehicles to be shooting into these crowds. Uh, They do have an obligation to go in and and take down obstructions. It is the right of all the citizens to have access to the streets. 
but this can all be done with, uh, you know, not necessarily peaceable measures, because you have to use some force to move people out, but you don't have to kill them. What's really disturbing, of course, is the United States claiming that they don't have any influence anymore, there's nothing you can do. Well, I'll tell you, you know, you meet with those people and you say, no more $2 billion a year in aid, it's cut off, it's gone, and that's a wake-up call. Now, what's interesting is that Saudi Arabia has started to take up the slack so that the U.S. has uh, been able to say we're reducing our aid to $1.3 million a year, but in fact Saudi Arabia, through the back door on U.S. accounts, is paying the balance to Egypt. And so uh, this is a very, very sneaky way of doing things, just like everything else the government's involved in. We cannot trust what they say or what they do. It tells us nothing about it's, what the real agenda is there. It seems like the Egyptian military is intent on stamping out the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, there, there's talk now of uh, making that organization illegal. Uh, what's, what's that work there? Well, it can't be done. The genie's out of the bottle. In, in fact, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood was an MI5 uh, uh, creation, been funded. Uh, they built this conflict, uh, and it's just like moving in and allowing millions of Muslims to come into Europe. They've created this conflict specifically what it does in terms of their ability to, uh, to uh, justify the war on terror. But they don't ever intend to let the Muslim Brotherhood rule for very long. That's what uh, surprised everyone, is why in this democratic election, uh, and of course, most brother wasn't a true majority, but it had a large enough minority to win the election. But it really was a disaster in terms of secular Egypt. And the secular Egyptians are correct. You ought to have free fundamental religious rights, but you ought not to be able to impose religious dogma or doctrine upon all of the people who don't subscribe to that religious doctrine. So I, I don't, you know, and it takes a constitutional change to make sure and they've not been able to do that. In fact, they're going to change the Constitution to allow more and more religious Sharia law. But clearly Egypt would be better off with a secular government allowing the Muslim Brotherhood to you know, have uh, all of the religious tolerance that they want. But, of course, they're not satisfied with that. Uh, but what we're dealing with, though, is a long-term historical context of torture and secret police work that is back in force. Uh, General Sisi is really a thug, uh, and he's very proud. He's very confident. He's going to be the new Mubarak uh, there if the U.S. isn't careful. But they brought him back to power. They supported him. And what this all tells me, Richard, is with the refusal to cut off and a token canceling of a military exercise, there's no sanction at all. I mean, listen, look what happened in South Africa. I mean, they've done nothing like this uh, towards killing people. It was a total cutoff of military aid, no commerce, no shipping, no funds transferred, confiscated national bank accounts. I mean, that's what real sanctions do to bring a country to their knees, and they're not touching that. So I think it exposes the real globalist objective that they want strongman as, um, you know, um, globalist government there. And I think what they're doing by having Al-Baradei resign, who's the globalist puppet that was in as vice president, he resigned so that his hands are clean of this. That means they're setting him up to take over as a solution at some time in the future. And then they get their globalists into power into Egypt. And I think that's where they're headed. All right. Joel Skousen stays with us. World Affairs Brief back with more of The Conspiracy Show in just a moment. Stay with us. 
Joel Skousen stays with us from World Affairs Brief here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Joel, very quickly, tell us how people can subscribe to your publication. The World Affairs Brief is showcased on my website, worldaffairsbrief.com, and uh, people can get a free sample issue simply by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. I want to move on to some other subjects that you've tackled in the latest issue of World Affairs Brief, but let's just touch briefly again on what's happening in the Middle East, because this is a tinderbox. I mean, what do you, how, how bad do you see this getting in Egypt? I mean, do you see any light at the end of the tunnel, or are we going to see bloodletting there for, for years to come? Well, it appears as if they are really going to try to violently suppress the Muslim Brotherhood. And they're starting to arrest. They've arrested over a 1,000 members of the Muslim Brotherhood now heading for the leadership. They're trying to decapitate the movement. Here's what I think the globalist agenda is. Syria is the main target, as we know, um, and both Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Bahrain, and others are you know, you acting as surrogates, funneling uh, money and arms into the Syrian rebels who are a ruthless lot. That's not going to solve anything in Syria. But the purpose is to take Syria down so that when Israel goes after Iran, that it won't be uh, having or uh, facing the threat of chemical and biological missile retaliation from Syria, which is a major threat to, to Israel. That's the reason Syria has to go down. That's the reason they haven't attacked Iran yet. What's the role of Egypt? Well, Egypt is a spoiler in this in the sense that I think the globalists eventually want an excuse to come in and have peacekeeping and occupation forces in Israel. And the way to do that is to make sure that when they attack Iran, somebody militarily strong like uh, uh, the Egyptian military comes in uh, and uh, tackles uh, Israel as well. And then at some point, Israel has to call for global uh, assistance from the UN troops. To mediate, and when they mediate, it's intervention at a la Kosovo, where they don't tend to leave. Anyway, I think that's the long-term agenda. It doesn't always work out that way, uh, but clearly the U.S. created the, the Arab Spring Muslim uprisings by funding them through secret uh, black operations. Then they're overthrowing those. Uh, Libya is still a mess. Uh, don't expect once Assad goes down and the rebels take it that they'll last very long too. The U.S. will eventually call out a globalist to take over Syria as well. It sounds like you're, you're, you're uh, suggesting we're heading into some sort of an inevitable uh, confrontation with Iran here. I am. I still think that uh, the reason that the globalists want to take on Iran, Iran is the only, and I repeat, the only Arab nation, not purely Arab, but Persian nation of the Arab a Muslim group that is started to build into the capability of building their own weapon systems. Uh, you know, we talk about the Muslim threat to the world where the Muslims cannot take over the world at all, ever, unless you produce your own weapons. It's not enough to have be supplied by Russia or the United States or any place else. Those arms can be cut off just like the F-14 parts were cut off in Iran and they can't fly their aircraft anymore. So unless you build your own indigenous weapon systems, you can't become a threat. Iran's trying to do that. That's why Iran's got to be taken out. Saudi Arabia's not trying to do that. They're remaining a puppet of the West. None of the other Arab countries are doing it except Iran. 
I mean, are you concerned about uh, about Iran? And do you think then, by extension, that maybe this nasty chess game that's being played out is necessary? Well, Iran is a threat to Israel because Israel is a threat to all the other nations. I mean, Israel is not just defending itself. If that were true, then I would be very much a defender of Israel. But Israel is a puppet, uh, playing right wing, but actually a puppet of the globalists. Uh, uh, President Sharon, not Sharon, but uh, Paris, is a puppet of the EU globalist, and Netanyahu is a Kissinger protege. These are not right wing people. They are not for preserving Israel. They are for yielding Israel up to the international uh, community, and they will do that through war. And so there will be no peace in the Middle East. This peace deal and the release of prisoners is only to continue the war on terror. There's nothing that they can negotiate with to get true peace there because of the conflicting interests. So I think war is inevitable. I think in the next little while we are going to see, after Syria is taken down, a major Middle East war. It will not turn into World War III. Russia and China will not get involved to stop the West. The West ruthless taking down of Israel and Syria will only enhance its reputation as the bully of the world. Eventually, some eight to ten years down the road, that will lead to World War III, but that's not in the uh, offing right now. Well, in, in, in terms of, you know, marching to war, just a, a quick aside, it's interesting, a lot, of, a lot of parallels between what's happening in the world right now and what was happening in the 1930s, when you look at uh, the um, sovereign debt, virtually every country in the world is now in debt. Every country now is, is printing money like crazy. Um, uh, so the economic situation, there are parallels there, even right down to the new fascination with Superman. Superman is back in the theaters again. I, I don't know. I just found that kind of interesting. What do you think? And more ominous, Richard, is the fact that there's two major predator nations, Russia and China, that are arming to the teeth. And the U.S. is denial in that, covering for that, and disarming. Just like in World War I, just like in World War II, we were in the process of disarmament as the Germany was growing as a threat, and then as Hitler was growing uh, as a threat in World War II, we were still disarming. And um, there is, once again, a America first a pacifist movement doesn't want us to get involved in wars, but they will put us into one, I can guarantee it. And that's why they're covering for Russia and China. So that by the time they start to warn Americans about the Russian and Chinese threat, it'll be way too late to stop it. Well, I think it already is. I mean, the, you mentioned China and the Far East. This is another parallel to the 1930s. The Far East is sort of rearming itself. I, I believe Japan now is, for the first time in many years, building aircraft carriers. They're very concerned about the Chinese strategic threat. What are your thoughts on, on, on China as a, as a strategic threat? Not for us, of course. Uh, they are in lockstep ally with the United States, uh, but that puts them in the position of acting as a trigger for war. I actually think the trigger will be North Korea attacking the South, which will instigate a, a series of reactions that will justify China and Russia throwing nuclear weapons at the United States. But China will and is starting to become an irritant to China, and China is becoming a predator relative to oil-rich islands in the uh, China Sea, they're after the Senkaki Islands in, in uh, Japan, as well as the Philippine Islands. And they're probing piece by piece, um, uh, mounting higher and stronger military incursions, staying longer, 
avoiding any real confrontation, but they're pushing their muscle around, testing the West resolve. There is no West resolve to stand up to China. Uh, and as I pointed out in this week's World Affairs Brief, China is rearming at a frightening pace in terms of long-range missiles, which they are specifically designing to take out American aircraft carrier groups. And um, with not only sea-skimming missiles with their military, their uh, naval forces, but actual ballistic missiles with maneuvering warheads that can be guided by satellite reconnaissance satellites to attack shipping out at sea. And that's why the Americans are going to have to stay at least 1,500 miles away from China. Hard to defend you know, Japan and the Philippines with that kind of standoff distance. China's also been buying uh, a great deal of, of gold, gold, gold bullion. And there are suggestions in the uh, financial world that China is uh, looking to usurp the United States position as uh, uh, the, uh, the reserve currency of the world. What are, you, what are your thoughts? And back it with gold. No, cannot happen. No? Uh, because they're not transparent. In other words, it doesn't matter if they say we have gold to back it. That doesn't mean anything. The, Bank of International Settlement says they have gold to back the Fed, but unless the currency is redeemable at a fixed rate of gold, it's not backable. And so there's no way that the world would accept a Chinese currency with a lack of transparency, and the Chinese will never be transparent about those things. In fact, you can't change out of the dollar. The only reason the dollar stays the world currency is because the Fed has been relative predictable and a predictable bailout source for all of the countries that... Uh, work with the dollar. And they also have a protection racket with the Arab states like Saudi Arabia. Where they, they guarantee them that they'll keep them in power no matter how corrupt they get. No matter how many child predations they do in, in kidnappings they take to Saudi Arabia. The United States protects them from overthrow within their country, just like Bahrain and Yemen. Each of these have protest movements. The U.S. is protecting them, not letting them fall, in exchange for acting as their surrogate for feeding the war on the phony side of the war on terror, which Saudi Arabia actively does, and so does Yemen now and Bahrain. Uh, and that's why there's this protection racket, and it's related to the dollar because they all deal in the dollars in terms of the oil, uh, petrodollars. Joe, aside from uh, you know, editor publisher of World Affairs Brief, you also specialize in in um, design and construction of. Uh, secure facilities, and I'm just I'm wondering, you know, what your view is. The the, the, uh, the news obviously everywhere seems to be pretty grim right now. Uh, I mean, how how close are we to midnight? I mean, do you see some sort of nuclear conflagration or some uh, impending? Um, electromagnetic pulse attack against the United States, or a lot of people just feel like there's something nasty, something evil this way comes, as they, as Ray Bradbury wrote. Do you have a sense of that? Well, actually, I don't in terms of the imminency, and there's a tremendous amount of disinformation floating around the Internet about imminent martial law, about imminent economic collapse, and they really don't know what they're talking about. The, uh, the Fed who is the one that could trigger economic collapse if they pulled out the plug of support and stopped bailing out and stopped printing money and, and feeding the speculative markets, which they're actively doing. They show no signs of pulling out. In fact, they show no signs of inflating past the 7 to 9% real inflation that the U.S. is experiencing. And because of that, they have become a very predictable 
source of new money at a predictable rate, and all the other countries in the West love it because they're able to inflate up to the level of the Fed and still keep their currencies on balance with the dollar. So everybody likes the, the existing system, except the BRIC uh, countries uh, allowed, allied with the communists. But nobody trusts them, nobody, you know, to run a world currency, so that's not going to happen. Now, in addition, in terms of an EMP strike, I do not believe that there's going to be an EMP strike done by a terrorist nation or even by Russia and China, because an EMP strike may create social chaos, but it doesn't stop the military our military from retaliating, and our military is hardened against EMP. So the best scenario that military strategists say is that EMP will, strike will come some 20 minutes before a real nuclear strike, which will take out major military targets. I think it's still 8 to 10 years away, at least. I'm not predicting that as the war time. I'm saying it. I don't think it's going to be earlier than that because Russia and China still need that much time to build their blue water navies, which they need to prosecute a world war. You can't do it without a blue water navy to occupy. Okay, Joe, got to jump in here. We're out of time. But finally, some, you know, at least some reasonably good news. There's nothing uh, major coming our way. There is time. Joel Skousen, editor of World Affairs Brief. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Joel. Thank you. And I've uh, linked up to uh, Joel Skousen's uh, website, World Affairs Brief. All you do is go to the homepage and click on Joel Skousen. Uh, at least for tonight, in the next couple of days, of course, everything that's on the homepage will be moved to the past show's archives. So if you're looking for uh, Joel's uh, website or anyone else's, keep in mind, you've got to go to the past show archives. Uh, but for the next couple of days anyway, just click on Joel. That'll take you to World Affairs Brief, and um, highly recommend you subscribe to that uh, publication. Uh, Tim Spreen, uh, thank you for your capable production as always. Uh, next week, coming up on the program, episode six in our JFK Connecting the Dots series as we march inexorably towards November 22nd, which will mark the 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll continue with the, uh, the JFK series Connecting the Dots right up until the 22nd with, of course, James D. Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, as we sort of work our way through that uh, major tome of his. And if it's not on your bookshelf, you might want to consider seriously getting yourself a copy. Uh, and I haven't cobbled the second half of the, the program for next week together, but I'm thinking probably uh, we'll hear from Jeffrey Steinberg and we'll, uh, as we approach the anniversary of Princess Diana's uh, assassination, quote, end quote. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll get Jeffrey on uh, to talk about that in more detail. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. And it's good to be home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.